so even though this this week is Parshat Korach, um, Korach always brings up a problem, which, uh, as you can see here, the Ibn Ezra and the Ramban duel out. Uh, and I'll just kind of scope out what the problem is, which is going to open the door to a much bigger set of problems. Uh, Korach's complaint, uh, or the driving force between behind his rebellion, uh, seems to be about the appointment of Aharon as the Kohen. Now, part of the problem is, is if, if we're reading the Torah as a narrative and reading Sefer Bamin Bar, which we cannot do as a sequentially, uh, chronologically accurate uh, history, and the reason we can't do it is because the text tells us Sefer Bamin Bar starts in the beginning of the second month, and then in Parag Zion, we go back to the first month. So by definition, there you can't, you can't escape it. And the Ramban will address that issue in a minute, because the Ramban, of course, is the famously the champion of Yesh Mukhtam Mukhar Torah. The Torah follows chronological sequence. But um, in the beginning of Korach, so we have this difficulty, because um, the, if we, f- we were to follow it in order, and it happened after the what we commonly call Chetam Raglim and the Mapilim, then that already happened several months after the Mishkan was operating and the Kohanim were in place and the Levim were in place. So why is Korach waking up now? So one answer you could give is that Korach simply saw a good opportunity when there was a lot of displeasure with Moshe to strike. And if indeed the rebellion of Korach and Datan and Aviram were happening at the same time, it was simply a question of now there's a groundswell of disaffection, and so it's a propitious time to, to start it. But as you see here in Ibn Ezra, in Source 2, it says, He calls them Bechorim, which of course is sometime, we assume, at the end of Adar, um, and the reason we say that is because in advance of, we're going to take a look at it, the famous narrative of Hanukkah Tanasi'in that takes up that, the biggest chapter in all of Chumash, uh, Parag Zion of Bamidbar, uh, it describes Moshe taking the gifts that were given and handing them to the different Levi families, and that's before the beginning of the Hanukkah Tanasi'in, which means that that this happens before the dedication of the Mishkan. And I've, I've argued that before in a different uh, account, because after all, if the test that um, Moshe gives Korach and his people is the test of the Torah, is what kind of crazy people are going to agree to stand around with the Torah in their hand, waiting for Hashem to choose which one he selects, knowing what happened to Nadav and Avihu. So that, that would be kind of weird, which is part of what goes behind the idea that the at least the Korach component of the rebellion happened earlier than this. But that, of course, throws into, into uh, chaos a little bit the, the chronological sequencing of what's going on. And the Ramban here says his piece. The Ramban famously, and the, perhaps the most famous statement of the Ramban on this is in Parshat Yitro, where Ramban argues for sequential um, uh Verity, and therefore that the story that you read in the Torah is happening in the order that it's presented, and therefore Yitro did show up before Matan Torah, which of course is a problem because what are all the laws that Moshe is adjudicating that Yitro sees Moshe getting tired from doing uh, if the Torah hasn't been given yet? And then the Ramban deals with that there, and the Ramban here quotes the Ben Ezra, Rabbi Avram, source three, 
כי זה הדבר היה במדבר סיני כאשר נחלפו בחורים ונבלו אביהם, and he goes on, וזה מדעתו של הרבי אברהם, שאומר במקומות רבים, אין מוקדם מאוחר בתורה. לרצונו. Now, לרצונו, of course, is a little bit of a job, of a jab. He's saying that the Ibn Ezra willy-nilly, uh, when it's convenient for him, if you will, says that the Torah is out of sequence. Perhaps the most famous example of this, both Ibn Ezra but also Rashi, is about the Mishkan and the Egel. Uh, according to both of them, the Mishkan was only commanded after Cheta Egel and as a response to the Egel. In one of several ways, as a kapara, or as a recognition that Ben Israel needs something more physical, however may I understand it. However, remember that the commands regarding the Mishkan are all given, at least in the Torah, immediately after Moshe ascends Har Sinai, and it's only at the end of that narrative that we hear about the eagle being made. And so the Ramban comes with his, his very famous approach about the Mishkan. At that point, saying the Mishkan was the plan and the Chathila, and it wasn't a response to the eagle. And so he says that Ibn Ezra, because he's not willing to say this to Rashi, um, has far too much respect for Rashi, he says that the, the Ibn Ezra takes the position of Ein Muktam Muchar B'Torah Lirtsono, meaning when it suits him. Ukvar Katavti, and this is a famous piece of the Ramban, because the Ramban, who is the champion of Yesh Muktam Muchar B'Torah, has to cede that there are cases where it's not the case. First of all, where the Torah explicitly, in one chapter, says this happens on Monday, And then on the next chapter says, and the Sunday beforehand, this happened. There's no way you can, you can read that as being chronologically true. The second thing is, true meaning in the sense of in sequence. And the second thing is that there are clearly places, like for instance in Bereshit, where one particular story will be told all the way to its end, and then the next story will be told, even though the beginning of that second story happened before the end of the first. The classic example is the death of Abraham. We're told about the death of Abraham um, um, before we're told about Yitzchak's marriage and about having kids. However, Yitzchak marries when he's 40, which means Abraham is 140, still middle age, and uh, still 35 years away from death, so we'll call that middle age. And the kids are born when Yitzchak is 60, and Avram is still alive. He's got another 15 years left to go on his life. And yet, they're told out of order. The reason for that is, That the Torah tells a story, finishes the story, and then goes to the next story, even if there's an overlap. But the Ramban here says as follows, Zorkatavti, and the Ramban has to admit this in the Parsha story, starting with the Parsha of Pesach Bashana Shenit and Pesach Sheni, which is introduced as in the first month of the second year, Hashem said to Moshe, tell B'nai Yisrael do Pesach. And the beginning of Bamidbar, of course, is in the second month of the second year, he said to Moshe, do a census. So clearly, Bamidbar is not presented in order. The Ramban's position is that the Torah is always in order unless the Torah explicitly says that it's out of order, like there in Pesach. And even there, there's got to be some sort of good reason why it's presented out of order. And therefore, he says that the Korach rebellion happened really here after the Meraglim. However, almost everybody rejects the Ramban, and almost everybody reads like the Ibn Ezra and like Rashi and like tons of Midrashim, that the chronological sequencing in the Torah is not necessarily uh, presented in the order in which it happens. Meaning, chronological sequence is not, uh, is not a, a theme of the Torah, but I'm, like, I'm going to try to broaden that and definitely walk away from the Ramban here 
and ask these questions. And again, thank you to Jason for suggesting because I think the questions help guide us. So why why is the narrative in the Torah not chronologically sequenced? In other words, why is there a Muktam Muchara Torah? Now, in some cases, like the one I just mentioned about Abraham, that's because there's an overriding um, a rhetorical concern, there's an overriding literary concern, which is you don't want to keep going herky-jerky between stories. You want to finish the story. So it makes sense. Finish the Abraham story, then go back and pick up Yitzhak from where we left him off, which was when he got married, and go from there. However, to have whole pieces be out of order means that there's something else going on. Now, as a an example of this, we're going to see, it's not really an example, it's a different question, which is going to lead us to a broader understanding of the role of chronological sequencing, if it exists at all, in the Torah. And that is the following. If you take a look at the dedication of the Mishkan, where is the dedication of the Mishkan described in the Torah? The answer is it's described in Shemot, it's described in Vayikra, and it's described in Bamidbar. And you've got to wonder, why is the same story told three different times? Now, where is it told in Shemot? It's at the end of Shemot, where the cloud rests. Let's take a look at the text in a minute. Where is it told in Vayikra? In Vayikra, it is the whole part of Shemini, the dedication, the death of another Raviyu. Where is it told in Bamidbar? That's the Hanukkah Tanasim. Um you have multiple commands regarding the menorah. And, and this is something that we saw two weeks ago in Parshat Balotcha. Parshat Balotcha starts with the command of the menorah, and there's nothing new there. Command of the menorah, when the Rashi has to therefore use the justifications, why is the menorah mentioned again here? Is to com- comfort Avraham, Aaron, because Aaron wasn't part of the Hanukkah Tanasim. Don't worry, Shalchag, Dolami, Shalahem. And then that leads to other Mepharshim taking other ex- explanations about why the Parsha of the Menorah is repeated again, because, of course, the Menorah is as a Kli described in Parsha Truma. And then the Mitzvah of B'nai Israel to bring oil is described in Tetzaveh. And then again in Vayikra, at the end of Amor, there's another Mitzvah of bringing the oil. And then there's a Bahalotcha also, the Menorah. Why so many times? So we're going to, um, we're going to take a look at it first by looking at two other pieces in Bamidbar and suggest a larger scope than just placement within a sefer as far as chronological um, uh, sequence. In a very famous story, the story that at least from the, from the text perspective, text overt perspective, is the, the downfall of Moshe and Aaron as leaders, is the the sin of May Meriva. By the Baradal Mashalim, Mora Kachatama Teva, Kelataida, Tabrachicha, the Ratemala Seller and Hemvenatan Memav. We've talked about this a number of times. Right? So take the stick and go speak uh, to the rock, about the rock, uh, unclear, and and the rock will give forth its water. And you'll feed him. Give water to everybody. Moshe takes the stick. And Moshe says what he says. Does he say it with anger? Does he say it as if challenging God's ability? A lot of different possibilities of what went wrong here. So he takes the stick. He raises his hand. Hits the, hits the rocks twice with the staff. Okay, and we're familiar with that and the consequences of it. 
And that's not what we're looking at today. The Bechor Shor has an interesting take on this story. The Bechor Shor, by the way, Yosef Bechor Shor, who really only in the last couple decades has achieved anything close to the renown that he deserves, was a parshan in the school of Rashi. He was a student of Rabbi Natan. He's from the town of Orleans, Yosef of Orleans. Um, and, uh, and his commentary on Chumash was very beloved by later Rishonim, but kind of because we, I think we only had a couple of and it wasn't published, it wasn't well known. And recently it's been published and, uh, has, has made it into the, into the, into the, uh, upper echelons. It's, uh, echelons. It's in, uh, it's in, on Al HaTorah in the Anermi Krogdolot. It's published in the Tratchaimi Krogdolot. It's a marvelous, marvelous commentary. And he says the following thing. He has quite a few innovative, uh, and, and insightful comments, uh, throughout, throughout. And in his comment on this story, he says, the Fiat <coughs> He says, this story of Moshe and the rock is the same story, not a repeat. It's the story that we read about in Bishalach. This is at the end of Bishalach, right before the very end, which is the part, the Parsha of the Lake, where the people come to, uh, to, uh, Masa and they complain and, and they complain about there being no water and uh, and Moshe calls out to God and God says take a stick and go to the rock and hit the rock and water will come out. Ella, so how why is it why is it told twice? Why is it told once in Bamidbar and once in Shmot? Because the point of Bishalach is to tell us the story of how Hashem took care of us with. Man, whatever that is, Slav, the birds, and water in the desert. Which means he says the parsha in Bishalach is about one thing. How Hakadosh Baruch Hu Oten Lechem took care of us in the desert. Then there's an individual parsha of Man, which is in Bahalotcha, which is the complaining. Then there's the story of the Slav, which is in Bahalotcha, the complaining about the food and the Slav that comes down. And then there's the story about the water, which is in Chukat, when Moshe hits the wall, it's the, it's the rock. He said, I'll prove to you that they're the same story. What do they call the place? In Bishalach, they call it Masa Umriva. In Moshe's own bracha to Levi, he says the following, Asher nisito so he connects Meimariva and Masa, right? Which are Meriva is also the the uh, the story in Chukat. Alma de Masa So you see, it's one story. Now there's another way to interpret that, but that's how he sees. It. He says that Masa and Meriva are one story. Therefore, you see the story in Bishalach and the story in Chukat are one story. Same thing in Meriva. Now he reads Mibarsin and Mibartsin as being the same place. This, by the way, is something that we find often with the school of Rashi, and there's just no way to, to fault them with this, is their sense of geography of Israel was not great. And you see this in numerous comments, especially when it comes to the borders of Israel and other places that are mentioned, that they're really not clear on direction and on location. And to say that Midbar Sin, which is between Egypt and Har Sinai, and Midbar Sinai, and Midbar Sin, which we know is actually in the Negev, uh, are the same place, 
You can't fault him for that. The, the Bechor Shor is undoubtedly incorrect about this particular statement, but that's not my concern. He's looking at the two stories and saying, the two stories could be told, be one story, one told in Shemot, one told in Bamidbar, from different perspectives. I want to use that as an opening. He said, Which means, by the way, he's taking the position, unlike Rashi, but like many we've shown him, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu actually told Moshe to hit the rock. And it was something else that was the problem, like the Rambam that he got angry, or that he hit the rock twice, or, or the words he said. This is the part I want to show you. Right? That sometimes the Torah will tell us part of the story in one place, and another part in another place. This is what we looked at last week, the story of the quote-unquote Miraglim in Shlach versus the presentation in Dvarim, Right, and he says that's a good example of how that happens. We have the same story now. There, it's explicit. Moshe is talking about sending the guys and the decree that came when they came back, and everybody complained. That's clearly the same story. And Moshe tells it in two different ways. Last week, I suggested a different reason for being told in two different ways, but really, it's the same issue. We have one story told in two sfarim, and because of the the rhetorical and literary concerns of that sefer or that setting, it's told differently. And therefore, in Shmot, the story is HaKadosh Baruch Hu is feeding B'nai Yisrael. So the man, the slav, the water, all from perspective of what HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us. In Bamidbar, it's perspective of the way B'nai Yisrael respond to it. And that, of course, is not nearly as positive. All right. I want to show you a second um, example of this phenomenon, but one that's just right there in the text. You, when is the first time in our text that we encounter Tumat Mate? Tumat mate, shall we say, is a problem. First time that we encounter it is with Nadav and Avihu. Right? Because here, Nadav and Avihu are struck dead in the Kodesh. They're inside the tent. And what's the first thing Moshe says? Moshe goes to Mishael and El Safan, their cousins, and say, take them out. Why do they have to take them out? Well, obviously, it's very unpleasant. They have to take them out because, presumably because of Tumah. But if you don't want to go there, you can certainly go here. In Bamibar Perak Tet, Balotcha, Moshe tells everybody, B'nai Yisrael, to prepare to do the Pesach. And then there's people who come, and they are Tme'e Nefesh. And they can't do the Korban Pesach. Now, why can't they do the Korban Pesach? So possibility one is that Moshe is telling everybody to do the Korban Pesach on the 14th of Nisan. And these people are Tameh. Unlikely that he's going to tell them on the 14th of Nisan to do the Korban on the 14th of Nisan without preparation. And Chazal say that that command was actually on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, possibly between the two, but at some point in advance. But the notion that they could not do the Korban Pesach on that day assumes that being Tameh mate, Tameh Lanefesh, Tameh mate, precludes you from participating in Korashim for a certain period of time but not forever. How do I know not forever? Because what's HaKadosh Baruch Hu's response here? Pesach Sheni. What does Pesach Sheni mean? In a month, you'll be Tahor, which means there's some sort of process, whether it's a waiting time or something you have to do, but time is definitely part of it, after which you'll be Tahor and you'll be able to do it. Okay? And we all know what that is. That's Mechatat, and that's third and seventh day Mechatat, and Mikvah, and then that all has to happen seven days after you had contact with the dead. However, that mitzvah only shows up with any explicit mention of days or process 
in Parsha Chukai, which is, in our counting, 10 chapters later. Which means that either there was some sort of oral tradition about Tumat Mate, but the formal presentation was only Chukai, or far more likely, the mitzvah that we have in Parshat Chukat, the Paraduma, was given much earlier. And that Moshe Rabbeinu committed it to writing in Parshat Chukat at God's direction. It's there because of some other lesson that we learned about Mitat Sadikim, Machaperet, right? Because right next to the death of Miriam or, some, or for some other reason. Okay. Now let's take a look at the two examples that I spoke of of things that show up in, in each of the three Sfarim that we're going to focus on. And I want to do that by first clearing the decks. I am not discussing Sefer Breshit in this year because Sefer Breshit is clearly a chronological history. Meaning, the purpose of Breshit is to tell us how we got to Mitzrayim, who we are and how we got to Mitzrayim. And so it starts with Adam, and then to Noah, and then to Abraham. Abraham has to lead to Yitzchak, Yitzchak has to lead to Yaakov, Yaakov has to lead to his kids, his kids have to lead to selling one brother down to Egypt, etc., until we end up in Egypt. We get that. And the beginning of Shemot also must be chronologically sequenced. It makes no sense to talk about Makat Bacharot before Makat Choshech. Things happen in order because the order is significant for the events. So when you're telling a history, whether it's a history or historiosophy, meaning a history that's there for the purpose of teaching you information or there to teach you a particular greater goal <laughs> in the picture, it has to be told in order because out of order doesn't make any sense. You're not going to have God, God creating man and then afterwards creating heaven and earth. It doesn't make any sense. And so that's going to be in order. I'm also excluding from this discussion Sefer Dvarim. Sefer Dvarim is a whole different kind of literature. It is it is what we call Neum. It is a speech. And almost everything in Sefer Dvarim is told from the perspective. I mean, Moshe Rabbeinu is the first person. B'nai Israel are second person. And God is in the third person. And Moshe refers to God. And only in certain places when he's quoting God, is God now in the first person. And at the end, when God tells Moshe to come up to the mountain, etc. But otherwise, Moshe is the speaker. So even though Dvarim... In many places, you could even argue chiefly, at least in the narrative parts, is a retelling of earlier events that happened. Um, and it tells it from a different perspective. I'm taking that out of the discussion. What I'm looking at is from the middle of Sefer Shemot until the end of Bamidbar. What do we have there? So let's take a look at it. We have a mitzvah of constructing the menorah. That's here in Source 8. And then we have, later on in Shemot, we have the command for B'nai Israel to bring the oil for the menorah. And then in Sefer Vayikra, we have the mitzvah of taking the oil and lighting the menorah. And then in Bamidbar, we have the mitzvah of lighting the menorah. Why? Why do we do it so many times? And of course, we can locally explain it, but the explanations are a little bit difficult, of saying, well, it's in Balotcha because Aaron felt bad, so that's in Nechama. And in Vayikra, it's there because we've just gone through all the Moadim, so this is something that's Tamid. Okay, nice. But the problem is that each one of those is a fairly weak explanation for something that is generally not what we're com- comfortable with in the Torah, which is repetition. I'll show you another example that I already mentioned, and that's Hanukkah Mishkan. At the end of the Parsei for Shemot, the, this is the very end of Shemot, you could say Chazak, Chazak, and Chazak, and after Chazak, if you want, is a description of the construction of the Mishkan, setting it up, and then putting everything in its place. And then 
Um, and then the cloud comes down and the cloud covers it and the cloud marches with them and the cloud rests on it day and night. And that's the dedication of the Mishkan. You get to Sefer Vayikra and you have Bayom HaShmini and the whole story of Bayom HaShmini all the way up until the tragedy of Nadav and Aviv. And then, of course, you have the whole huge Paragzion in Bamidbar of the dedication of the Nassim. So I'd like to roll back and take a look at a couple of other Mikorot here that impact on what we're looking at. The dovetail is what we saw at the beginning with the Bukhor Shores take. Let's start with this. Sefer Vayikra. When and where did Sefer Vayikra happen? So Sefer Vayikra actually tells us when it happened at the beginning. On the first day of the second, of the first month of the second year, what we call Rosh Chodesh Nisan, and then suddenly we get the mitzvot of korbanot, and the mitzvot including korbanot nedavan, and korban, korbanot chovah, chatat, and then the korbanot, the, the mitzvot to the kohanim, tzavet aron v'nav limor, and then the, the, um, the, the narrative about the dedication of the Mishkan, and then we assume the rest of Ayikra is all happening in that context, which is given in the Mishkan at the foot of our Sinai. And then when that's all finished, we open a pair of and we suddenly have the surprising statement by the Veradonai Moshe Behar Sinai Lemur. So what's that? So the Rashbam on the spot says, Kodem Shukam Omoed, which means the last three chapters, if you will. Bahar Bechukotai of Ayikra happened before Sefer Ayikra. So we see an explicit example of where the Torah sets, presents the information deliberately and decidedly out of order. Give me another example of something which is, in a sense, milder, but right, you know, it's something we've looked at also in the past. The story of the man. When did the story of the man take place? So the story of the man took place, it tells us, on the second month, right after they left Egypt, on the 15th day, which means exactly 30 days, or 29 days, exactly a month, after they left Egypt, they ran out of food, they came to Midbar Sin, not Sin, Sin, um, and um, and the people were hungry, and then Hashem said, don't worry, I'm going to send man, they sent man, and then he'll go out to collect, and then the people save some, and then Hashem gets angry, and then they go out to collect on Shabbat, and he gets angry, and then everybody keeps Shabbat, and they do it properly, and everything's beautiful. At the end of that story, Vnei Yisrael achulat haman arbaim shana. So Vnei Yisrael ate the man for 40 years. Where's 40 years? Who 40 years? We just got out of Egypt. Another problem here is it says they ate the man until they actually got in the Canaan, which means who's writing it. That's the, the Ramban in Chukat. So where's this information coming from? What's it doing here? So this is actually quite simple. We'll take a look at one more Makor, and then we'll come back to this, and it'll be straightforward. But then we'll look at our bigger problem. The Mishnah Chulin, there's a famous machlok between Rabbi Yun and Chachamim about whether Gin HaNasheh applies to a pig. If you eat the Gin HaNasheh of a pig, only the Gin HaNasheh of a pig, do you get makot? Why is this a question? Because when Hashem prohibited Gin HaNasheh, who did he prohibit it to? So I'll start with another question. Was Yaakov Avinu allowed to eat pork roast? Sure, why not? So if Yaakov was the one who was banned from eating Gidon Hashem, it would mean Gidon Hashem, any animal that you'd eat, which means Chazer also. And therefore, 
Gidon Hashem, the ban of Gidon Hashem would apply to Chazan. If, on the other end, Gidon Hashem is only prohibited in Sinai, then that would mean of the animals that you're allowed to eat, don't eat Gidon Hashem, which means Chazan is not included. And that's the machloket here. Noheg b'Torah ve'ino noheg b'Tmeah. Chachamim's position is Gidon Hashem only applies to kosher animals. Rabbi Yudah Omer, af b'Tmeah, Rabbi says, no, they apply to non-kosher animals. And what's his argument? I'm Rabbi Yudah, after all, we were banned from Gidon Hashem in the times of Yaakov, and Yaakov and his sons were allowed to eat non-kosher animals. There was no kashrut yet. Amrulo, so what was Chachamim's answer? He said, your point is a valid point, but it's just not true. The Sinai Nemar, the prohibition of Gidon Hashem was actually, which of course is in Bereshit, was actually given in our Sinai. But it was written in its place. What does that mean? So the Gemara comments, Tanya, Amrulo Rabbiura, this is a broader version of the, of the conversation. Does the Torah say at the end of the story of the wrestling match, therefore, B'nai Yaakov don't need Gidon Hashem? We're not called B'nai Yisrael until Sinai. It's not exactly true, but we're not yet called B'nai Yisrael at the Gidon Hashem. When's the first time we're called B'nai Yisrael? Is when we go down to Egypt. Elishmo B'nai Yisrael. But certainly not not at the time of the of the uh, wrestling match, because by the way he only he didn't even get the name Israel yet. He just got a promise that later he'll get the name Israel. So he can't be called Bnei Israel. El Abesinai Nemar. So what's Chachamim's position? The prohibition of Gidon Hashem, meaning the line Al Kain Lo Yochlu Bnei Israel Gidon Hashem, has to have been in Har Sinai. El Shnichtabim Komol Edam Eizatam Nesarlan. In other words, it's an etiological piece. Why is it that we do not eat Gidon Hashem? Because of the story with Yaakov and the wrestling match. So in order to explain the Isur that we got at Har Sinai, the Torah writes it in Bereshit, so we'll get the connection. Okay. Rashi here says something, which, I don't know about you, I consider to be quite innovative and somewhat revolutionary, at least from our perspective. Rashi says, Mikrazel Onemar Ad Sinai, the last source, page 20. Elachar kiblu kiblo Moshe b'Sinai, but Moshe got this mitzvah Har Sinai, uval Torah, and then Moshe now is writing the Torah. When's he writing the Torah? At the end of his career, at the end of his life. Katav ota azara etc. Moshe, it sounds like Moshe is doing this of his own accord. It doesn't say according to Baruch who told him. Moshe writes this prohibition in Breshit. In other words, Moshe took editorial license and said, "I'm going to write this prohibition in Breishlach," right after the story of the wrestling match of our. Ancestor Yaakov, so that everybody will understand what the prohibition is about. Okay, so we see several examples of where events are placed elsewhere from where they happen uh, because of editorial or literary concerns, concerns of understanding. The story of the man is, it starts and almost all of it happens in a few weeks between Yitzhak Mitzrayim and Kabbalat Torah. And yet the story is brought to a conclusion all the way to the 40 years. The Gid Hashem, according to Chachamim, is something that we're given in Har Sinai, and yet Moshe Rabbeinu writes in Breshit so that we'll understand what the reasoning behind it is. Parshat Bahar and Bechukotai happened before the Olmoed, but they're written about after the Olmoed is up, and we got lots of mitzvot in the Olmoed, so that the culmination of the standard Har Sinai, or for whatever reason, ends with that breach. So we see that there's all sorts of other concerns going on. So what I'd like to do is to make the following suggestion. I'll do it without the text in front of us because we don't need it. 
I'd like us to think about the middle of Shemot until pretty much towards the end, the, the two-thirds of the way through Bamidbar, as a single story. It is the story of Mitzrayim to Arvot Moab. In other words, it's from leaving Egypt until getting to that spot where we're about to cross. And the, chiefly, from leaving Mitzrayim up until Parshat Chukat, where we seem to slip into the 40th year. And that all of the events that take place from the time that we leave Mitzrayim up until the time that somehow we leave that second year and move into the 40th year, because the Torah seems to be silent in the meantime, includes stories, stories that belong to different narratives. Sefer Shmot, Sefer Yikran, Sefer Bamidbar are three different narratives. Sefer Shmot is the narrative of God and the Jewish people. Sefer Bamidbar, Lumatzot, is the story of the Jewish people and God. And Sefer Bayikra is the Mishkan, the meeting place. So you have a story in Shmot, let's start with the Bechor Shor, of HaKadosh Baruch Hu feeding and giving sustenance to Bnei Yisrael. Because it's God and the Jewish people. And therefore, in there, we don't hear about complaints. We just hear about fetching, which is understandable. And God, God does not get upset, upset about it. And that is because the people are hungry, the people are thirsty. And of course, Baruch Hu commands what he commands, and, and they take care of, of that Mara and at Meriva and, and, and Mibarsin with the Man. They're all taken care of. That same story in Bamidbar, which is the story not of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and B'nai Yisrael, it's B'nai Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, how we relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, shows the ugly side of things, the complaining side, the rebellious side. And therefore, that same story is told from a different perspective. Now, take a look at, at the menorah. The menorah, from perspective of God giving the Mishkan to the Jewish people, is this beautiful golden clee which glimmers, which shines. That's, by the way, only in Shmot, that description of the menorah itself, except for one line in, in Bami Barbara, the whole description in Shmot, twice, of course. And Bnei Yisrael, your role is to bring oil so that it should always be there. That's HaKadosh Baruch Hu. From the perspective of the Mishkan, we have the mitzvah of the menorah, now, you could also ask the question, why does the menorah get three, three buildings? That's an interesting question. But we get the mitzvah of the menorah in the, in Vayikra, perspective of its role in the Mishkan, it's tamid, it's tamidiyut, it's, it's the fact that it gives light all the time. What about in Bamidbar? In Bamidbar, it is B'nai Yisrael's role. Aharon now, and not as Shluchet Rachmana, not as God's representative, but as Shluchet Yidan, as our representative, is there to light the menorah. That's Baalotcha. And that's, by the way, the, the spirit behind Rashi connecting Baalotcha to the Matanotan of the Nesim. This is our offering to God. And now you look at Chanukat HaMishkan. Chanukat HaMishkan, the perspective of, is one event. It takes place over the course of, we'll call it two weeks. 
But that one event can be viewed from several perspectives. From the perspective of God's gift to the Jewish people, it's the cloud that rests on the Mishkan. That's the Anishmok. From the perspective of the Mishkan itself, it's the description of the various korbanot that have to take place for that to be affected, and that's in Vayikra. And from the perspective of B'nai Yisrael, it is what B'nai Yisrael do in their part to dedicate the Mishkan, which of course is the Chanukah Tanasim, where every tribe is present. Note that in Shemot and Vayikra, tribalism doesn't show up. The only place it shows up is on the vestments of Aaron, where the names are there. But otherwise, it's one single nation as HaKadosh Baruch Hu take care of his family. In Vayikra, there's a Mishkan, and everything's around the Mishkan. When you get to Bamibar, it's all about tribes. It's all about the people and how the people relate to God. And so Chanukah to Mishkan in Shemot is God's presence resting on the people, the cloud coming down. Chanukah to Mishkan in Vayikra is formalistic and is formulaic and presents the korbanot that have to be brought in order to affect that, that cloud coming down and affect that Shekhinah resting in the Mishkan, as it's called. And Bamibar is about what Bnei Yisrael, not the Kohanim, not the Levim, but Bnei Yisrael do in order to affect that presence, and that is the korbanot that they all bring, and that's Chanukat HaMishkan, the very famous Chanukat HaNasim. So what you have is, instead of looking at sequentially, which you really can't, because Chanukat HaMishkan happens either starting on Rosh Chodesh Nisan or the 8th of Nisan, Machloket, but it happens at a particular point in time, and it's told in three different chronological frameworks. So instead, look at it as, this is the story of God taking care of the Jewish people. This is the story of the Mishkan. This is the story of B'nai Israel and how they relate to God. And now some of the seminal events or mitzvot are going to be presented in two or all three of those uh, contexts, but as reflected, as reflects the perspective of that particular context.